We're combining all the best old school wisdom with all the top new school methods to bring you the optimal way to coach and play the great game of baseball. This is the 80-20 Baseball Masterclass with Coach Bo. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, coaches, parents, players. This is the 8020 Baseball Masterclass. Thank you for being here. First and foremost, I hope you have a happy Thanksgiving week with this 2020, this year 2020 that we've had. Let's really be thankful, right, for everything that is good in our lives. And there is a lot to be thankful for. I'm thankful for you guys. Hopefully, you're thankful for this podcast. Speaking of which, let's get right into it. In this episode, we got three topics to cover here, three things to talk about. First, we're going to discuss how to improve the changeup quickly and efficiently. I'm going to share with you one drill, one simple drill that you should be doing at every single practice with your team if you're having only two practices a week or three practices a week. Now, if you practice five days a week, then you might not need to do this drill every day, but it's definitely something you should be doing two to three times a week. And for most youth practices or most youth schedules, this is going to be something that you want to do at every single practice. And lastly, I'm going to share with you one of the greatest coaches that has ever coached the game of baseball and he's not very well known outside of the baseball community the inner baseball community i'm going to share with you his name what made him so great some of the things that made him so great and i'm also going to share a link to an article that is my opinion very helpful to get the paradigm of coaching right now remember this podcast is primarily designed for the youth baseball coaching high school baseball coaching world if you're into coaching individual athletes like pro pitchers pro hitters. This isn't going to be the podcast for you. Although we do discuss stuff that absolutely could apply to the highest level, the highest level. Absolutely. In fact, we talk about things, all of this could apply, but those pitchers that are professional or at the elite college level or are hitters at the elite college level or infielders or outfielders, they're so nuanced at that point. They're very nuanced in how they're training the skills and techniques where this podcast is to train, to help, to give guidance to coaches, to give answers and solutions and strategies and tips to coaches that are running a high school program, running youth baseball teams, especially those youth coaches. There's way more youth coaches out there than there are even high school, college, and pro all combined. There's just so many youth coaches, and I believe they're underserved in this area. And I believe it's because, I largely believe it's because a lot of the coaches that want to get on and share a lot of this stuff, they want to talk about the real advanced stuff, the really advanced cutting edge things. And that is super fun to talk about. That is a lot of fun to talk about. In fact, I would probably enjoy getting into some of those discussions a little bit more, but that's not where I believe the baseball community needs the majority of support. So I'm really focusing on youth coaches, high school coaches, and really the coaching angle. So it's more about coaching a team. And we do definitely are going to talk like today, we're going to talk about how to improve the changeup. And that's something that can, well, it may not help all your players. Most likely all your players aren't pitchers. So yes, we are talking about parts of the game, strategies of the game. The third thing, or I should say the second thing we're going to discuss today is something that's going to work and help your base runners. So all the base runners, basically all your hitters, because they all eventually become base runners. Hopefully, if not, they need to become a PO, aka a pitcher only. So we're going to talk about specific things that you can do as far as running drills, but we're not going to get into the very cute, minute details so much in this podcast, because I believe those are covered 10 times over on a lot of other podcasts. And I believe that a lot of youth coaches, I firmly believe that youth coaches and even high school coaches, they get to 
distracted by those little 1%, you know, needle movers, those little 2% needle movers. Those are great for the Clayton Kershaws. Those are great for the Verlanders. All right. Those are great for the Snells. Those are great for those guys that have won Cy Youngs that are at the professional level. In fact, I would back up and say a lot of those guys need to actually back up and learn the stuff that we're discussing here, or at least some of those, when I talk pitching, the stuff that we talk about when we talked about a few weeks ago, getting the lower half better, striding straight towards the plate, directional momentum, things like that. They need to work on that stuff probably more often than they do, but they're at a level where they're working on just slight little tinkering with their grips and hiding pitches and not tipping pitches. And they're working on this game theory stuff that's trying to figure out the optimal way to pitch a hitter. And if you're doing that at the high school and below level, then you are absolutely off the mark, in my opinion, with the big needle movers. On this podcast, we discuss the big needle movers. So with that said, I will talk about a coach that is phenomenal. I'll share a link that's super helpful, and that'll be the last part. So we're going to get into the change-ups and how to get your pitching staff's change-ups better, faster. Number one thing you can do is have your pitchers, all of your pitchers, throw their change-up during their throwing routine, during their throwing program. You can call it a throwing routine or a throwing program. Typically, it's done towards the beginning of practice because you need the arms warmed up and ready to go for practice. Sometimes it's a little later in practice if you have base running and hitting and things like that early on. But typically, even with base running and hitting, you have defensive players that need to be ready to throw. So change-ups, throw them in your throwing routine. Don't just wait till the bullpen. Don't just wait to the game for sure, but don't wait for the bullpen. Don't wait for pitchers to get on the mound to use the change-up. Start the pitchers off or have the pitchers start their change-up practice, their change-up training, getting comfortable with the change-up during their throwing routine. One of the biggest things that makes a change-up successful is one, trusting it and throwing it. I think pitchers and getting comfortable with it and pitchers that throw it more and more and more get more and more comfortable with it. Then when they get out there and have success in the games, they're going to use it more often. First off, the pitcher needs to get comfortable throwing a change-up grip because it's not the grip that they've probably grown up throwing a baseball with. As a fielder, you're looking for a four-seam or a kind of a fastball type grip. You're not trying to throw change-ups and breaking balls to first base if you're a shortstop and from the outfield into second base or home plate or third base, right? Pitchers, that's the only position that uses a change-up, that grip of a change-up, and you got to get your pitchers comfortable throwing that grip because it is different than the typical fastball grip and the breaking ball grip. But again, the fastball grip is something that's used predominantly in a lot of ways, and the change-up grip is something unique. It's a little bit different feel depending on what change-up you use. I prefer to use a circle change, or at least I call it an open circle change. I do have a video on Vimeo, so you can go Coach Bo, search Coach Bo Baseball. I have a change-up video that breaks down the change-up, the grip. It shows you the grip. I'm a big fan of the open circle change-up, so essentially a circle change grip. So if you look up circle change, an open circle, I don't like the fingers closed, but again, it's going to vary for every pitcher. It's a feel thing, so it's, it might be a little different. I've seen the majority of pitchers that I've worked with have more success with a little bit of an open circle, and they slide their thumb a little more under the ball like they would their fastball, a little towards the bottom of the ball. If they close that circle off, they pinch that pointer finger, the index finger, with their thumb. If they pinch them together, then it kind of brings the thumb up on the side a little bit and reduces some of the control and also doesn't quite mimic the fastball spin. So you go watch that video on Vimeo. I break down the whole changeup. Now, there is a caveat to the changeup that you'll see in that video, and it'll break it down. Young pitchers struggle with changeups, one, because the hitters at the youth level, their bat speed, the bat speed at the youth level, the slow bats have not been weeded out yet. So even through high school, you're still going to have a few slow bats. They haven't been weeded out. Those guys are long gone by pro ball. You, you can't have a slow bat. You don't necessarily have to have the fastest bat in the world to make
make pro ball, but you cannot have a slow bat speed. The problem with having somebody or throwing a changeup to a hitter with slow bat speed is that the changeup is a slower version of the fastball. Essentially, that's what you're throwing is a slower version of your fastball. But because the hitter is timing up the fastball, timing up the fastball, you throw the changeup, it looks just like the fastball. That's where you get them out in front and that's where you create weak contact or swings and misses. So with the youth pitching, there's a couple things. One, the bat speed of the hitters. They haven't weeded out all. So in other words, when you use a changeup at the youth level and even the high school level, but definitely youth level, you need to identify the hitters on the other team that have fast bats and then use the changeup against those hitters. All right, fast bats. So they like to guess fastball. Use it against those guys. Down in the order, be a little more cautious with the changeup because you might run into some players with slow bats and now you're doing them a favor by throwing the changeup rather than just pounding them with the fastball from there. Also, the mound distance is much closer with at the youth level. So the changeup doesn't have as much time to get to that speed differential. When you have a 45 foot mound or a 50 foot mound or whatnot, that's not 60 feet, six inches. So that extra 10 feet, that extra 15 feet can really help as the players get older. They can really utilize that extra distance to get their changeup to slow down and come off and really kind of slow up as it gets to the plate. So the mound distance, it's close. You got to be careful with that. As they get older, it's much more useful, especially at the 60 foot, six inch mound. Third thing, hand size. Pitchers, the hand size does help a lot with the changeup. So pitchers, as they get older, the players get older, their hands get bigger and handling that changeup becomes much easier. It becomes more comfortable because their hands have grown. So what's the point of this? One, just be cautious using the changeup young in the game situation, because what happens, I think, is pitchers use it in the game situation when they're young. The mound distance doesn't allow it to slow down enough. They throw it to some hitters that probably should never see a changeup because they're slow bat speed hitters and they haven't been quite weeded out yet. They'll be gone by varsity high school, definitely by college and pro ball. And also they don't feel as comfortable with that grip because their hand size isn't ready. I mean, look at youth pitchers. Go look at, I mean, a lot of you that have worked with 7U, 8U, 6U, 9U players, their fastball is really sometimes a three-fingered fastball grip. It essentially is kind of like a change-up grip. They're just trying to grab and hold the ball as best they can. So they're not even, their hands aren't big enough to start separating the grips out that much at six and seven years and eight years old. So keep that in mind as you move forward. But I do recommend pitchers use it during practice. Immediately, as soon as they start throwing, or at least as soon as their hand can separate between a traditional fastball and not that three-fingered fastball that the young kids throw. But as soon as they can actually grip a changeup grip fairly well, or fairly comfortable, I should say, they should start throwing it during their throwing routine. And if you want to do it in the bullpens, that's good. But definitely during the throwing routines, the throwing program, it should be thrown every third throw or every other throw during a throwing routine, a throwing program. Depending on how much you want to push that process along, getting better with the changeup, you can have the player, the pitcher, throw it every other throw with their partner. So I would be a little cautious as you get to a long toss distance. Once you get out to a long toss distance, and that's going to vary depending on the level, but say for high school, once you get out to that 120, 115, 110, you got to be careful throwing that changeup at that distance because you start to do some things with your wrists and your elbow starts to drag a little to create a little bit of an angle so you can get that ball to travel a good distance. I think long toss is phenomenal, but I would use the fastball grip for long toss. So once the players, the team, the pitchers get to a certain distance, then you really want to just go heavy on the fastballs, all fastballs. But there's a window there. There's a big window there going out and coming back during the throwing routine where you could be throwing changeups every other pitch or every other throw, I should say. It would be even better if you had them go through their windup or at least a stretch position and do a pitch from there, even though they're not really throwing to a catcher, they're just throwing to their teammate who's standing up. And I would have them aim for the belt, middle belt. Get pitchers better with their changeups by having them throw it more and more, but don't wait till the game to throw it because it may not be ready. It may not be something they're good with yet. It may not be something that's even applicable to the game situation because of the age they're at, but it's definitely 
definitely something that you want to start throwing young. If you want your pitcher to have a huge advantage as they get older with that changeup, have them start throwing it during their throwing routines, whenever they're playing long toss up until they get to a certain long toss distance, have them throw it every other throw. Fastball, changeup. Fastball, changeup. Now I'm going to let you in on one big secret that I've never heard anywhere else, and I'm not saying it hasn't been shared somewhere else, but I follow a lot of baseball. I've read a lot. I study baseball for 35 years. I played all the way up the minor leagues, high level college, high level high school, and all the way through. And I've coached for 17 years. I've never heard anybody else teach this, but this is a huge competitive advantage for you, my listeners. Match the changeup spin with the fastball spin. So if you have a pitcher who predominantly throws four seam fastballs, match up that changeup, unless they're throwing kind of like that three fingered split finger, or they do throw a split finger, which is something that some pitchers have success with. Most pitchers are going to have a lot of success with the circle changeup, or as I call it, the open circle change. And they're going to rotate four seam fastball, four seam circle changeup. Or if they throw both a four seam fastball and a two seam fastball, and some pitchers do, I think at the youth level, you should mix it up a little, but also it's not a bad idea to find out what the pitcher throws best, a four seam fastball or a two seam fastball. What gets the best results? What do they have the best command over? And really stick using that. They can always adjust it later in life because the fastball is simply a grip change when you go from four to two seam. There's a little early pronation, maybe as you get really advanced, but for the most part, switching from a four seam to a two seam is simply a grip change, not an arm action change by any means. So I would pick for youth in high school, I would pick the fastball that they're best at, the one that has the best command, that they get the best results at, they get the most swings and misses at, they get the weakest contact at, pick the one that's the best, even if it's not that great right now, pick the one that's the best and then match the change up to that. So if it's a four seam fastball, they got a firm fastball, match it with a four seam circle change, as I call an open circle change and have them throw that in their throwing routine, in their throwing program, every other one, every other throw. Now, I know I just hit on a lot right there on the changeups alone. Go back, listen to it again. My goal here is to give you an efficient podcast, an efficient podcast with things that are big needle movers. We're not going to talk about 100 things. We're going to talk about 10 things and we're going to really dig into them, but we're also going to keep it moving along. So you can go back and listen rather than me sit here and just keep repeating this. You can go back and listen again, but we want to keep it moving to the second part. Now, before I jump into the second part, I think I mentioned this before on the podcast. I definitely sent out a tweet last week on this. If you haven't already, go watch Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso, it's a show on Apple's, one of their series. It's a coach. And we did talk about, I'm almost certain we talked about this on the podcast. There's this series on Apple TV that Apple produced. And I'll tell you what, this is the best TV show that teaches coaches a phenomenal way of going about it. Paradigm shift. It also gives strategies and really shows just an amazing way for a coach to build a team culture and they wrap it in a comedy. They wrap it up into a funny comedy. It's funny. Now, it's not necessarily kid appropriate, but it's definitely something that older, it's not super inappropriate, but it might not be young kid appropriate, but something you want to catch later at night. It is awesome how it ties in, how to build a, it really is funny comedy that is built around a story of a coach building up a team, building up the culture of a team and making a team successful, at least getting them more successful and all the struggles along the way that are very common with all coaches that are very common for any coach that's been out there. And you're going to find if you haven't coached much, you're going to see it. If you've coached at all, at least like a year or two, you've already seen a lot of these things, these struggles that come up. And this show does a great job of giving some learning points, but also making it funny. So I think it's great. You can learn and laugh. To me, that's the best show. And there's very few of those. There's very few of those. Like I'm a huge Frasier fan. I love Frasier. Absolutely love Frasier. But there's not really anything you're going to learn from Frasier, right? Frasier is just a show that you laugh at. Seinfeld is a show that you laugh at. Now, Seinfeld might give you a different look at our world and look at certain things a little differently. 
but they're really just designed to laugh. Now, this Ted Lasso is going to give you absolute usable, applicable strategies. It's not going to stop and give you a tutorial. It's not a TED Talk by any means, no pun intended. It's not a TED Talk. It's not an instructional show by any means. It's not a documentary. It's supposed to be a funny comedy series, and they just announced that they are going to do a second season too, so I'm excited. But go binge watch that. I'm almost assured that you will enjoy it. Now, this is the next thing we're going to talk about here, and this is something that you should do at every single practice unless you're practicing every day. You should have your players, your team, practice steel jumps, what I call steel jumps. You are practicing getting a jump, stealing a base. Now, they might be taking the next base on a pass ball or a wild pitch, but either way, they're reacting quick and they're going. I like to go off on a steel jump because they're reading the pitcher's delivery. They're reading the pitcher out of the stretch. You definitely want to do this as much as you can before every game. You should be doing five of these before every game, in my opinion. I think you should do about five to 10 of these at every practice. It should not take more than about seven to eight minutes. If you're doing just five, you can probably knock it out in three minutes. The whole entire drill, they don't need any equipment. They don't need a ball. You, the coach, or another one of the coaches will be the pitcher, mimic the pitcher. They're not dilly-dallying. You get on the mound or you get in a position that mimics the mound or where the mound would be. You have the players line up on the right field or left field. I guess it would have to be the right field foul line. And they line up on the right field foul line. You might even have them lined up like the first players lined up at first base, getting his lead. And then there's players behind him. If you have a big team, say 20 or 15 guys, you might break it into two groups. There's no reason to go more than two groups. There's no reason to go more than two groups. You're going to line your players up and you're going to line them up down the line. Then they're going to take their lead. So, and you guys have probably seen this done. Some of you have done this drill. Now, here's a couple little details that I like to work on. One, I like to put a cone about two thirds to three quarters of the way down. I like him to have a competition to get there. The player that wins the most, he gets exempt from cleaning up at the end of practice or maybe even the next couple ball parties or whatever. You can reward him however you want. If I have a big team, say 15 players or 12 players, anything over 12 to 15 players, I like to split them into two groups. I'll usually go my faster group and my slower group. If players can't handle being in a slower group, then they need to get faster. We need to stop coddling these players. You can easily test your players and you can figure it out. And then you can even go off times. You can test them all on say a 30 yard sprint and then just say, hey, these are the 30 yard sprint scores. This is what the numbers say. It's not my opinion. So you're going to be in group A or group B if you need to separate your groups. This makes it fair when you're having competitions. This makes it fair because then your bottom half, your your slower guys aren't having to compete with your your sprinters, your racehorses early and vice versa. It's getting your faster guys to really push themselves because they're competing with the five or six or seven players that have like speed. So if you can do all of them at the same time, if you have like nine players at a practice or 10 players or eight players, you can definitely do it all at one time. Have them line up on the line, get their lead. You're the pitcher. You come set, do some fake picks. Don't use a ball. Just do some fake picks. If they mess up, if they get picked off, you can give them a warning. If they get picked off again, the whole team should bear crawl to center field and back, something like that, just to keep them so they're not just goofing around. There's some focus. If two players get picked off in the drill, so the first one would be a warning. The second one would be everybody bear crawls together as a team, bear crawl to center field fence and jog back. And then they reset and you do it again. You work on some different types of pickoffs, but you don't want to get caught up just picking the whole time. You definitely want to pitch the plate, but you want to vary your timing. If you're the coach, you're acting as the pitcher. You want to vary your timing. You want to hold the ball a little longer. You want to go quick pitch. You want to watch and see if they're leaving early. So, you know, you might hold it and just listen. If if you get them leaving early, all right, that's either the warning or that's part of the bear crawl. I would definitely mix in some Bach moves, some Bach move pickoffs, make it challenging for your players, but don't dilly dally coaches. Don't dilly dally out there. Move quick, move efficient, set up. As soon as they're ready, you get going, you come set, do a Bach pickoff, do a pitch, a regular pitch, a quick pitch. You could even Bach on a quick pitch. Maybe you don't even come set, but you know what? There's going to be pitchers in the games that do not come set and the umpires do not call it a Bach, but you might have a steal on and all of a sudden your runner's not ready for it. So you challenge 
challenge them, you challenge them, you challenge them. So by the time the games come around, they are ready. Their steel jump, their timing is good. And also I would every third time, I would vary and go with a lefty or maybe every other time go with a lefty or switch halfway. Maybe you do 10 steel jumps during practice, five or six are against the righty and four to five are against the lefty. The ratio would be, ideally the ratio would be very similar to those ratios you would see in a game, which typically is a few more righties than lefties. So steel jumps, you want them to do steel jumps. When I've done this with teams over the years, it's just quick. It's, hey, steel jumps, let's go down the line. They're jogging because if they're not jogging, that's busting my main, one of my main rules, that's hustle, hustle. So they're hustling down, they set up. And once you do a drill once or twice, that's the best thing about not using a plethora of drills. Have a couple go-to drills. The biggest reason that's helpful is because the players can set it up and get into it quickly. Go with a couple drills that are really awesome for base run and a couple two or three drills that are awesome for ground balls or fly balls or batting practice. And then it doesn't take so long to set it up, to give them a tutorial, to run them through all the nuances. And then you can build. Once they get the foundation of the drill, you can build upon that and make it more challenging. Add little nuances that mimic all the little varieties and the variables that come in the game. So they hustle down, they line it up and you go. There's no reason you can't do 10 steel jumps in less than 10 minutes. There's no reason. And that's including pickoffs. They should be set quick. They're moving fast. If you move the drills fast, this is something that I think a lot of coaches don't grasp in baseball. This is something I think a lot of coaches don't quite grasp in the community of baseball. This goes for high school coaches, college coaches. I've, I've seen this at every, I've seen this at the spring trainings for the major leagues. I've seen this for major league spring trainings. I've seen this for college division one practices. I've seen this out there at some high level high school practices and it's a dime a dozen at the youth level. And that's just a slow paced drill. Not as challenging as it should be fast. You want to make the game slower. Don't tell your players, slow down, take a deep breath. That No, no, no. Your players are going to sink to the level of their training. Your players are going to sink to the level of their training, no matter what pep talk you give them or motivational talk you give them. So set your drills up to be fast paced. So move fast, not crazy fast where they're not getting the quality out of it, but nothing less than just right there at that fine line, that threshold of, all right, now we're messing with the quality and now we're it's quantity quality. And then boom, you want to move fast, move fast, make them be ready, make them get going, make their focus stay on. Don't sit there and don't talk a bunch. All right, let them go through the reps. Let the players figure it out rather than have you tell them about it. Let them feel it out rather than you talk about it. And so they figure it out. They're going to feel it out, feel it out, feel it out. When they feel it out, that's so much better than a speech, than a pep talk or a chalk talk that drags on. Let them get reps. So do this steel jumps. I call it steel jumps. Five to 10 every practice, five before the game. Get them going. Put that cone or something, a glove, a couple sets of gloves or even a bat. I'd be a little careful setting a bat out there, but a helmet, something that marks the finish line about two thirds of the way down the line. I wouldn't even have them go all the way to second. They might coast through it, but I would have them go about two thirds of the way full sprint when they hit that. That's the end of the race. It's a competition. Like I said, you can reward the winner of each group and have those two players maybe take it easy during cleanup or whatnot, or they don't set up batting practice. However, it works for you in terms of reward. Or you could even say, hey, the top two guys get to go over there and get some water. The, the remainder of the group is going to bear crawl to center field and back. That's something you can also do. I'd prefer you use a reward, such as something that they can get out of a little later rather than a physical, rather than the bear crawl. If you haven't heard me talk about the bear crawl, you need to go back and listen to my bear crawl episode. I break down the bear crawl. It's the best physical kind of punishment consequence, I should say. It's the best physical consequence, I believe, that you can use. And it's fast, it's efficient, it's safe, and players hate it. And it doesn't mimic the training that they're doing if they're working. You know, a lot of them are doing their own baseball training, fitness, workouts, they're going to the gym. It doesn't get confused with that. So it's definitely seen as a punishment, not like, hey, why are they making us run for training? And then why are they making us do running for punishment? Are we supposed to be getting better or are we in trouble? 
trouble. You don't want to send that mixed message. That's why I love the bear call. And the other thing is playing time. But I don't think that's something you need to pull out during practice necessarily. That is, unless they miss practice altogether, then playing time is definitely needs to be deducted. So get that change up infused into the throwing routine, into the throwing program for all your pitchers. You need to do the steel jumps every single practice. You don't necessarily have to have them go at second. You could maybe every third time you do this, have them line up at second base and do their steel jumps from second base. Absolutely. The reason I say every third time is because runners are going to, your players are going to have more reps during the game at first base than they are at second base. That's just the percentages, right? You're going to have more walks and singles than you are doubles. With that said, in other words, you're going to spend a little bit more time at first base than second base inherently because that's just how it all plays out. Now, you need to go check out this link that I'm going to add into the show notes. The link I'm going to add into the show notes is to an article. It's not an article I wrote. It's an article about Ed Sheff, who's a Hall of Fame baseball coach. Ed Sheff, he coached at Lewis and Clark State. He's retired now, but he coached at Lewis and Clark State for forever. And he did just a phenomenal job. And when I recommend coaches and resources to you, I don't go off of just records that I'm reading. I'm not just going off of hearsay. I'm actually going off of what I know and have watched and listened, really got it from the horse's mouth. So, and that's no pun with Mr. Ed, the old famous horse. Coach Sheff, Coach Ed Sheff, I've listened to videos that he's done. He hasn't done a lot. There's not a lot out there, but I've listened to all of them that are out there. I've read every article that's been published that he's done, which isn't a lot. And I've talked to players that have actually played for him. And I'll tell you what, he is awesome resource. Now he doesn't have a lot of out there and I'd love to get coach chef on this. So anybody who knows coach chef, you can give him my email and let him know. Hey, coach Bo would love to have you on. Uh, I did. (laughs) I did. There was a story. I was playing in the college world series, the summer college world series in Wichita, Kansas. And they hold the NBC, the national baseball Congress world series out there every summer. This was, I was 21. It was my third year actually playing in the Alaskan baseball league. So the two top teams from Alaska went to the Wichita baseball NBC and the two teams from Alaska, one of my good friends, Mike Hofius, one of my good friends, Mike Hofius was on Ed Chef's team. So he was playing for Ed Chef's teams, the Fairbanks Gold Panners, a historic kind of a well-known history behind them program. And I was playing for the Anchorage Glacier Pilots, another very storied program. So we played, we actually ended up playing in the final game that year. The Fairbanks beat us. We actually played them in the championship game. And again, I think there were 64 teams that played in this tournament. It was like 64 team tournament. We were the last two teams standing. And so anyways, we were staying at the same hotel and I went to call my buddy, Mike. It was a little late. You get a couple days off and I went to call him to see what he was up to. He wanted to play like some cards or something. And uh, he had switched rooms with uh, Coach Chef. I guess Coach Chef wanted the, the suite that my friend Mike had and I, he deserved it. Coach Chef put in all that time. He deserved the suite and then some. So I think that's what happened. So anyways, I didn't realize that until I called the room and he was real nice about it. But uh, it was a little late and I'm sure he was getting ready thinking about the game in a couple days. That's the kind of coach he was. But uh, Coach Chef was somebody that really looked at practice. Here's the biggest thing I got out of Coach Chef and kind of studying him from a distance that he was always looking to get incrementally better. He was always looking also to mimic the game situation during practice. He was always looking to make his practices challenging, to make his team culture better, and to mimic all of his drills around the game situation. So, so many coaches that don't do that have just, you know, fallen into luck or wins and championships and whatnot, but he won so much and so often. I said, this isn't a fluke. There's something going on. There are definitely a lot of variables, but when you start digging, you go, oh, wow, he makes his drills very game-like. He challenges his players to be tough and he's very efficient. So Coach Chef is somebody, I think if you can go just Google Ed Chef, it's C-H-E-F. If you can go Google Ed Chef, look him up and see what you can find. I'll put the link to the article I'm talking about here in the show notes. So check that out, read that article. Now to finish up, last thing I want to point out, you know, I hear a lot of these young coaches and I talk to young coaches 
coaches you know, from time to time, younger coaches being like under 30. And it seems like there's a, a big draw from young coaches. It still seems like a lot of coaches are getting into baseball and there's a big push for these young coaches. And when I look at the statistics for my podcast, the listener statistics, it really jumped out the other day. And again, I've tried my best to give you all the best that I can to provide you the best value that I can. And for me, I like to see who's listening, where they're listening from, but more importantly, the age groups. And only 4%, only 4% of my audience, 4% of my audience is under 34 years old, 4%. And it was like 1% of the audience is under 24. Or I think, no, sorry, only 2% of my audience is under 27 years old. And I thought, I I sure hope that's just a coincidence. That's just happenstance. That's not something that's something uh, common across the board. Because uh, when I see the older numbers, you know, a lot of 30, 40, a lot of the coaches that are listening are 40s or late 30s, parents aging in the 50s and 60s, and even a few that are in their 70s that are listening. Now, I'm not sure exactly where they get the ages for the people listening. I don't know. I don't remember ever putting my date of birth when I listen to Apple Podcasts or whatnot, but no, it's giving me these percentages and I go, wow, that's pretty interesting. So only 2% of my audience is under 27 years old. And I know there's a lot of coaches out there that are under 27 years old. So I don't know. Is it just the old coaches? Uh, I don't want to deduce from just that. It's not a massive sample size of millions and millions, but I don't want to deduce that these 27 and youngers are just, they have it all figured out, or maybe they just listen to other podcasts. I don't know. But it's interesting because I really do a lot to, I mean, I'm a huge fan of technology, huge fan. I'm a big fan of data. I'm a big fan of not putting, using batting average. I'm a big fan of not bunting really, sacrifice bunts. I'm a big fan of drag bunts and safety squeezes, but I'm not a big fan of bunts. I'm a big fan of using the data in baseball. One of my favorite books is playing the percentages, which is kind of a, a Bible for a lot of these younger coaches, especially the stat head coaches or the people in the front office for these major league teams. So I'm all about using technology and younger, newer methodology. So you can't say I'm not, I love old school coaches. And I think the experience is something you just cannot duplicate. You something you can't just go download. It's not something that you can just go scan to your computer and have. It's not something you can just back test. You can back test it, I guess a little bit, but the experience then becomes something of researching, reading, digging into a lot of old stuff and really grasping that. But there's something to be said for being out there in the trenches like myself, 35 years, because you just find out some of this stuff just doesn't work. And some of the stuff works not as good as they say. And some of it's just a flat out waste of time. But you also learn that when they do bring something up, some of this new methods, you're like, oh yeah, that's something that's huge. Like I love technology for gamification purposes. I love technology for gamification purposes. I love that. I think virtual reality hitting is going to be just the thing of the future. So I'm all for that. And the reason I'm virtual reality hitting, I don't really care that it's technology or anything. That's not me. All I care is that the hitters get better as fast as they can. I'm all about getting the players better as fast as they can. And if that means virtual hitting, then that's virtual hitting. I don't know. It doesn't matter to me. The means doesn't really matter as long as it's not hurting anybody else. As long as it's a a legitimate training technique, I don't care if it's technology based or you're going out there and it's just a towel or some weights or some plyo balls or just old school long toss or whatever it is. So it's interesting because if you listen to my podcast and most of you listen to it for quite a while, this is episode 53. I'm all for the new school. I'm all for the old school. So it's interesting when I see these old coach, the older coaches, not old, because I know a lot of you are like father, dad age and mother age, and you're in that your parent age. And then there's also the older coaches, the fifties and sixties. So I see a lot, I see those numbers super high, which is cool. I I would love to, I don't care who my listeners are in terms of age. I just want you guys to be open-minded, come in here. And I just hope you're getting a lot out of this. And I think you are. I think you are. Give me your feedback whenever you want. Reach out, ask me some questions. Coach Bo at 8020baseball, Coach Bo at 8020baseball.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at 8020 underscore baseball, 8020 underscore
underscore baseball, 8020 underscore baseball. And don't worry, I'm not going to fill up your feed with a bunch of junk. I usually only put out something when I'm like, ooh, this is something when I think of something or I have stuff that I have saved and I go, this is a game changer or this is a pretty good sized game changer. That's when I put it out there. It's really not, I'm not just posting the post. I don't believe in that philosophy, but I do like to post some stuff just to kind of keep molding that paradigm throughout the week or over time as you guys are also listening to this podcast. So go use that change up in your throwing routines with your players. Go get those steel jumps going at your practice. If you get a chance, watch Ted Lasso, funny stuff and awesome coaching message. And lastly, I'll put the thing in there, the link for Coach Chef. And man, Coach Chef, he was a master chef. He was a Michelin star chef out there on the diamond. He was always cooking up some awesome drill. Enough of these dumb puns. It's time to say goodbye. Take care of your health. Take care of your families and go out there. Use this, please. Go out and make the baseball community a better place, a better place for everybody. And I'll see you on episode 54. Next week, we are going to talk about J-Bands. And I'm going to share with you something. I'm going to be the first person that probably goes against the prescribed use of the J-Bands. And I'm going to tell you two ways that I love using J-Bands that a lot of players, well, most players don't use them for. I'm going to tell you two reasons I love J-Bands. And there's one drill that I've never seen that I kind of just randomly came into with a player one year, years and years ago, that I love using the J-Band for. There's two things I love using the J-Bands. Those are those elastic bands. There's other forms of them too. But I'm going to tell you why in next week's episode, in episode 54, why, and I'm going to give specific evidence as to why, based off of my background in kinesiology, why I think the J-Bands are not the best product or not the best equipment for strengthening the shoulder and the arms and the lats. Definitely think you should own them or at least an elastic band. I'm a big fan of them, but I'm going to share with you exactly why I think the prescribed way of using them, the predominantly prescribed way of using them by Alan Jaeger is actually a way I wouldn't use them for. And I'm going to actually tell you two ways. One that is kind of prescribed and another way I've never seen talked about how to use it, something that can really, really help pitchers in the front side, front arm, glove side control. And we'll get into that next week in episode 54. You guys have a happy Thanksgiving. Take care. This has been the 8020 Baseball Masterclass. Take it to the field. 